Our speaker this afternoon is prize-winning author, educator, and public speaker, Martin Puckner, who is the Byron and Anita Veen Professor of English and Comparative Literature and the founding director of the Mellon School of Theater and Performance Research at Harvard University. Professor Puckner earned his PhD in comparative literature from Harvard and also holds degrees from Constance University in Germany and UC Santa Barbara and UC Irvine. Professor Puckner has written over a dozen books, including Stage Fright, Modernism, Anti-Theatricality and Drama, and Platonic Provocations in Theater and Philosophy. Additionally, he's published more than 60 articles and essays in the London Review of Books, Yale Journal of Criticism, and the Journal of the History of Ideas, among others. Professor Puckner is the general editor of the Norton Anthology of World Literature and the Norton Anthology of Western Literature. Through those volumes and his Harvard X course, Professor Puckner has brought 4,000 years of literature to students all across the globe. This afternoon, he will discuss his newest book, The Written World, which tells the story of literature and its power to shape people, civilizations, and world history by exploring 16 selected stories from more than 4,000 years of world literature. Please join me in welcoming Professor Martin Puckner to the Boston Athenaeum. Thank you very much for this introduction. It's a pleasure to be here. So, as you mentioned, I, about 10, 12 years ago, I started to edit a world literature anthology that really began with the beginning of writing in Mesopotamia and ended uh, 4,000 years later in the present. And the work on this anthology opened up for me a kind of new vista, because like everyone, I had been relatively specialized in my interests, focusing on 19th and 20th century literature in Europe and in America. Uh, but working on this world literature anthology made me for the first time realize that there, there are so many interesting patterns uh, about writing and literature that emerge when you take this kind of bird's eye view of, of the entire literary, literary tradition that I decided to write up this uh, story, the story of literature in, 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 in this book, The Written World. And I want to give you a little bit of a taste of that, of that story, what that broad story is um, to, uh, today. So it's good to start at the beginning. And in, in this case, that means with the beginning of writing. So writing was de first developed 5,000 years ago in Mesopotamia, in today's Iraq. It's always difficult to get a handle on this moment of origin. There are, of course, written records after the invention of writing, but not before. So how exactly, how do you pinpoint this origin? It's kind of difficult. But fortunately, there's a story about the origin of writing that Mesopotamian scribes told themselves and wrote down about their culture's great achievement, namely the first full-blown written script. And, and this is how this story about the invention of writing goes. It's set in the city of Uruk in, in Mesopotamia, the land between the rivers, Tigris and Euphrates. That's what the uh, Greek word Mesopotamia means, land between the rivers. And Uruk was really the first urban space in world history. 
made possible by a new intensive form of agriculture that allowed the hinterland to, to generate enough food for a kind of concentration of people in an urban space. And this is, according to the story, where writing was invented. And it went like this, that there's this king of Uruk who wanted to subdue the mountain lord of Arata. So what he did is he took a messenger and he sent the messenger up into the mountains with a threat demanding allegiance. But the king of Arata was not impressed by this messenger and sent the messenger back with a challenge. If the king of Uruk managed to transport grain in nets from the floodplains up into the mountains, maybe then he would admit, submit to him. So the king of Uruk scratches his head, thinks about a way of meeting this challenge by letting grain sprout. He manages to put it into grain. He gives it to the messenger. The messenger runs up, back up into the mountains, presents it to the king of Arata, but the king of Arata still doesn't feel like he wants to submit to the king of Uruk, so he sends the messenger back. And back and forth this goes a couple of more times, a few more challenges, a few more challenges met, but never will the king of Arata submit to the king of Uruk. And this makes the king of Uruk really mad. And he launches into this long rant. And at this point, the messenger standing next to him panics because he can't remember every word of the long rant. And it's at this moment in this story that the king of Uruk takes clay that's ample in the floodplains between the rivers, puts his words onto this clay tablet, gives the clay tablet to the messenger. One more time, the messenger runs up into the mountains, gives it to the rival king. says, here's the message. The king of Arata, of course, doesn't know what writing is. He looks at the tablet, scrutinizes it, doesn't understand it. But somehow he's so impressed by the fact that the king of Urukin put his words onto clay that he submits to Uruk. So this is a story. The story itself is over 3,000 years old, and it captures this, how these scribes imagined the origin of writing. Now, because this is a story that was written by scribes, it sounds a little bit self-serving, right? So here is this group of professionals who are so impressed by their own handiwork that they imagine that the mere power of words can actually achieve what no army can, namely to, submit, to subdue a rival. But I do think it does capture something about the power of the written word. Something else that's interesting about the story and that is that it has absolutely nothing to do with literature. And that's actually true about the first uses of writing in Mesopotamia, that they were used by imperial accountants, by tax collectors, in order to, to, to write down economic transactions to keep records. Really, the, we see here the origin of the first sort of state bureaucracy in the first states, the first territorial states, that with the power with the bureaucratic power of writing, managed to project their, 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 their power into the hinterland and, and create territorial states. So that's something else that's captured in the story. And so it goes for a couple of hundred years until one of these imperial accountants, these tax collectors, 
decides to do something very different with this writing technology, and that is to write down a story. Now, stories had, of course, been told orally wherever humans have lived. It's really one of these fundamental human drives. And they were transmitted orally, often by specialized bards or singers who would pass them down, who tell these stories, readjust them for their present day and their audience, and then pass them down to the next generation. And that system worked very well. But at some point, as I said, one of these accountants decided to use this new technology of writing to write down a story. And that, for me, is really this moment of origin when oral storytelling intersected with these new writing technologies, with the technology of writing itself. And that, for me, is, if you will, the big bang of literature, the big bang of written stories. And since then, for about a little over 4,000 years, I think we've been living in a world that's been more and more shaped by written stories. So the first story here, um, here is a clay tablet uh, of the ones in a clay envelope from the Harvard collection that was used to project uh, the force of the center of Uruk into the hinterland. And this is the first story that emerges from this intersection of storytelling and writing technology. This is a tablet from the Epic of Gilgamesh. The Gilga Epic of Gilgamesh celebrates writing as the great achievement of this civilization. The story, the Epic of Gilgamesh, celebrates the King Gilgamesh, who is king of Uruk, the same city which the story about the invention of writing locates as the, the, the first place where writing was invented. And it celebrates King Gilgamesh as, as someone who rebuilds the walls of Uruk and who is, rebuilds the city itself. What's interesting to me is that Uruk, as presented in the Epic of Gilgamesh and through excavations, is really a city made of clay. The city walls are made of clay bricks. The houses in Uruk are made out of clay. Piping is made of clay. Vessels through which the agricultural products of the hinterland are brought into the cities are made of clay. There are even clay sickles that are used for harvesting. And the potter's wheel is one of the first mechanical devices that, that gets used in order to produce many of these clay products. So in many ways, it's, it's really a city made, made out of clay. And the Epic of Gilgamesh starts by giving us a tour of the city and even mentions the clay pits out of which uh, this ubiquitous material is, is harvested. So a city made of clay, harvested from clay pits, but the greatest achievement of clay is precisely this. It's the material that is used for this first full writing system, namely cuneiform writing, which, is, which, you, which you do by making these indentations with, with, with a stylus into clay. Um, and this is, in fact, what the Epic of Gilgamesh celebrates above all. There are many other early epics, including the Homeric epics, that are set in a purely oral culture. There is no writing in the worlds depicted by Homer. But this and, and, Homer, and the Homeric epics always start with a muse inspiring a singer 
to sing. They present themselves, the Homeric epic, as sung orally. This is very different here with the epic, with the much earlier epic of Gilgamesh, which presents itself as written down, and written down by the king himself, by King Gilgamesh. So it's very clear that this culture is so proud of this invention of writing, very conscious of its importance, as also captured in the story about the invention of writing, and therefore presents this foundational story, the story that will become so crucial for the entire region for many hundreds of years as something that was written down by the king himself. So this is the first really important text in world literature, the first text that emerges, important text that emerges from this intersection of oral storytelling and writing technologies. But more and more of these foundational epics happen as more cultures develop, get wind of this new way of putting words onto clay or papyrus or parchment. And so more and more cultures enter the written world on the Eurasian continent, in China, in Egypt, in the Near East. And so more and more intersections of oral storytelling and writing technologies happen. And so we, 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 in the ancient world, we have more and more of these foundational epics that now take written form. So this is, if you will, the first stage or the first chapter in the story of literature, these foundational epics that emerge wherever writing is used, not just for accounting purposes, but also to write down stories. The next stage um, introduces us to something that's overly familiar, namely sacred scripture. Right? Today, I think it's almost impossible to imagine a world religion, for example, without the idea of a sacred text behind it. I'm not just talking about the so-called religions of the book, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, but other religion, world religions as well, Buddhism, Hinduism, there's always this idea of sacred scripture. So we are really living in a world shaped by this idea of sacred scripture, that some of these stories that were written down are sacred. I say it's very familiar, but what I'm trying to do, in fact, is defamiliarize that a little bit. Because if you remember that writing really started out as something very mundane from the world of tax collecting, from bureaucrats, from accountants, I think it's maybe um, easier to imagine that this idea of sacred scripture, that this accounting technique would suddenly be used for something that is connected to the divine, was something maybe not so necessary, not, not inevitable. In other words, this, that this idea of sacred scripture, like all things, had to be invented at some point. And this is what the second chapter in the story of literature is about, the invention of sacred scripture. And there's a scene that I use to, to capture that, where I feel like the first full idea of a, of a sacred text was developed, not in Uruk, but in the city of Jerusalem. 
And it happened in Jerusalem after Ezra, the scribe, returned from Babylonian exile with a group of fellow exiles to rebuild the city. Ezra, the scribe, he had been trained as a scribe in Babylon, the center really of the written world, because it was the first place where writing was developed through texts like the Epic of Gilgamesh. So Ezra the scribe um, is trained in Babylon as a scribe, then gathers a group of exiled Jews around him. They return to the city of Jerusalem in order to rebuild the city and to rebuild the temple and to reinstitute Judaism as a temple practice. And this they proceed to do. But somehow, at this point, that is no longer enough. Because in Babylonian exile, through the work of such people as Ezra the scribe, the written stories of the Jews had become more and more important. Makes sense in exile, if you no longer have a temple, if you no longer have a king, these texts, these stories, is in, is, if you will, it's all that holds your culture together. And they are, in Babylonian exile, at the center of writing. So all of these forces conspire to make these, these written stories of the Jews that existed before, but now become more and more important to their culture, to the practice of Judaism. And so this culture, Ezra and his followers, bring back to Jerusalem. And it's these practices that stand behind the following scene that's described quite in detail. So after the temple has been rebuilt, Ezra builds a stage out of wood, and he calls everybody together, and he enters the stage, and he brings with him the Torah scrolls that hold the sacred stories, well, the stories, and he holds up these Torah scrolls, and then he demands that the people bow before these scrolls and worship them as if these scrolls were divine. And I think it's at this moment in that scene where, where this transformation happens, where writing is no longer just used to write down stories about gods and the invention of the world uh, and divinities, but where writing itself, the scrolls themselves, become sacred. And it's at this point that this idea of sacred scripture, it's one of these places where the idea of sacred scripture was developed. And it was, as I mentioned, a powerful idea because ever since we have been really living in a world that's quite crucially shaped by these sacred texts. And a lot of the uh, challenges that come with that, I think, is something that we have been dealing with for hundreds and thousands of years, how to interpret these sacred texts, how to use them to live by them, to what extent are they subject to change, how much room and leeway do we have in interpreting these texts, or do we need to, strict, to stick to a very strict fundamentalist interpretation of these sacred texts. All of these questions emerged really for the first time there in Jerusalem because they're connected to this idea that suddenly some of the stories that were written down by scribes became divine. So this is the second stage, the second chapter in the story of literature. And as with the first, all of these stages are very much with us. They are not abandoned. They are not superseded. 
they are, they, they are very much shaping our own world today. So let's go on to a third stage in the story of literature. And that's when I started to piece together this big picture was perhaps for me the most surprising and therefore maybe also the most interesting. And it doesn't just happen this third stage in one place. It's part of a very interesting pattern to my mind. And the pattern looks like this, that in these literate scribal cultures, there emerged a group of charismatic teachers who assembled a following, who introduced new ways of thinking and teaching, and who gathered more and more students and followers around them. There are a couple of names for these teachers. In, um, in India, teacher is called the Buddha, here depicted surrounded by his students. In China, his name is Master Kung, or known to us by the Latin name Confucius. In Greece, his name is Socrates. In the Near East, his name is Jesus. And there are other charismatic teachers later on as well. Muhammad is one of these charismatic teachers. Now what's interesting is that all four and the others lived in literate cultures, cultures where scribes had written down stories, where some of these stories were declared sacred and foundational for these entire cultures. But interestingly, none of these charismatic teachers wrote a single word themselves. Instead, they insisted on a live, interactive teaching with their students on a kind of question and answer. They lived with their students, they themselves lived exemplary and unusual lives, and their students asked them questions and, and admired their life and lived with them and followed them around, leaving their old life behind. Now, among these four, Socrates was the one who was most explicit about why he chose not to write. And Greece, 5th century Athens, where he lived, was one of the most literate places on earth. Socrates knew how to read and write, but he chose not to. And why? For a couple of reasons. In part, he chose not to write because he worried that a written text can be very easily taken out of context. You can just do with it and manipulate it in ways that's not possible with the speaker present. He also felt that you cannot ask a written text any follow-up questions. So that, again, there would be a lot of scope with writing, with written words, for misunderstanding, miscommunication, manipulation. And finally, he worried that once we start to trust written words, once we start to trust what he considered these external storage devices, that we no longer would have to know things ourselves because we would have out outsourced that into these material objects. So for all these reasons and others as well, he very deliberately chose not to write and only speak orally. And maybe we can extrapolate that these other charismatic teachers maybe refused to write, even though they could have written, for similar reasons. So 
An interesting pattern here that within a few hundred years, uh, at the waning of the, uh, uh, the world before, before the Common Era, we have in these different literate cultures these teachers who are skeptical about writing, who are critical, if you will, of the, of the force of writing and of the detrimental effects of writing and therefore reject it. But now the inevitable happens and these teachers die. And some of them die of natural causes. The Buddha and Confucius die of natural causes. But others, Socrates and Jesus, die of a violent death. No matter how these teachers die, they die. And now the students are faced with a real dilemma. What to do? It's clearly important to preserve the words and deeds of these beloved teachers but the teachers had refused to write down any words, so what to do? In some cases, the case of the Buddha, there were oral traditions that happened for hundreds of years. In other case, cases, case of, the, of Socrates and of Jesus, the transformation into writing happens more quickly. But sooner or later, the students of these teachers betrayed them. They betrayed them by writing down their words. Perhaps saying that they betrayed their teachers is a little bit too negative because we should be grateful for their betrayals because otherwise we wouldn't know a single word of the Buddha, of Confucius, of Socrates, and of Jesus because, other, because these figures, as they come to us, come to us only through the words, the written words of these students. And it's, I think, unfair to call them traitors for a second reason as well, and that is that they were quite conscious of what they were doing. They were quite conscious that their teachers had refused to write down their words, and for good reasons. So what these students did, all of them, separately, independently from each other, they started to develop new form, a new form of literature in order to capture the lives and deeds of their teachers, form of literature that captured some of the oral interactive mode that they te their teachers had preferred over writing. And that means for them, meant for them, that they were writing down their, their, their teachers' words in a much more dialogic and dramatic form. For example, Plato, Socrates' teacher, uh, student, wrote down his words in the form of philosophical dialogues. Right? Dialogues where you can actually watch Socrates interact with his students and followers. Yes, it's now all written down, but you get from these dialogues, almost like plays, and some, sometimes these plays were even performed, you get something of this life flavor, uh, uh, you get something from the, the way in which these teachers prefer to interact with their students and followers instead of writing. In other words, these students incorporated some of that critique of writing, some of that resistance to writing back into literature, and in the process produced these texts that surround these master teachers, as they're called in China, or these charismatic teachers, um, produce very vivid texts, texts that read very different from these old foundational epics, such as the Epic of Gilgamesh, or these sacred texts like the Hebrew Bible. They were much more vivid, much more dialogic, uh, easier to follow also. And this is perhaps why these texts 
written by the students, connected to these charismatic teachers, took the world by storm. And these were really the texts that led to the first world religions, such as Christianity um, and Islam, or Buddhism, or, or uh, uh, Confucian, Confucian philosophy, or, or Western philosophy, like uh, in the case, as in the case of Plato. Because these texts also have a second feature that made them so powerful. They're addressed to everybody. They're not just addressed to a particular class, a class of scribes, or a particular group or tribe or nation, they are quite universal in their address because they're addressed to individuals, but to any individual. So they were, they're kind of much more universal class of texts, these texts that emerged from this complex and interesting interaction between teachers and students. And this is why these texts, as I said, took the world by storm and are now at the origin of some of our world religions and philosophical traditions. But there's a second reason why these texts became, and I consider them the sort of third chapter in the story of literature, why they became so influential. And that has to do with technology. One of the through lines of my book is the importance of different and new writing technologies. And it makes sense. I started by saying that literature for me is the intersection of storytelling and writing technologies. So it, ma it ma makes sense that new technologies would change the way in which stories are told and written down. And this is, if you will, the dynamic that I follow in the book. And it can be illustrated very nicely with one of the, um, with one of the texts that, that I just mentioned, namely the Buddhist sutras. So written down by students of the Buddha, they were carried far afield to China where they are translated into Chinese. And it was in China that the Buddhist sutras uh, encountered um, two of the most important writing technologies. The first was paper and the second was print. The earliest printed text in the world is the Diamond Sutra, a text that revolves around the Buddha, written down by his students many hundreds of years after the Buddha's life and death. Um, but an early adopter of these new technologies, in part because these new texts that emerge in the religions that emerged from these new powerful texts are proselytizing. They're universal. They, they try to seek readers and followers. And so once new technologies emerged in China, paper and print, that made it easier and cheaper to replicate texts, Buddhists were some of the first to avail themselves of these new technologies. And so the, the Diamond Sutra is the earliest printed text in the world hundreds and hundreds of years before Gutenberg in 866, 868 of the, of the Common Era. And that starts an interesting pattern for me, namely that new technologies are often used first by sacred and, uh, and foundational texts. It's the case here with the Buddhist Sutra, and the same will happen when print will be reinvented 
in Northern Europe by Gutenberg, because what's the first text that Gutenberg prints? It's the Latin Bible. So again, a, a, a sacred text becomes an early adopter of uh, a new technology, in this case, print. But I want to stay with the Diamond Sutra for one more moment, because I mentioned paper as the first technology used by the Diamond Sutra, because it lowers the cost of literature. And so I follow the invention of paper in the book to the different places where the knowledge of papermaking was acquired. They're very dramatic stories about how papermaking made it from China to the Arabic world, the next culture that, that acquired the, the secret of papermaking. There are stories about how, how Chinese prisoners of war are tortured and the, the secret of papermaking is tortured out of them. We don't know whether that story is true, but again, it captures the importance the culture placed on this secret of papermaking. So Baghdad becomes the new center of papermaking, and paper really is the powers, in a sense, the golden age of Arabic letters to the point where um, um, that we have wonderful calligraphies of the Quran and Baghdad here, this is a library in Baghdad, is, the, um, um, is one of the effects of, um, of paper in the Arabic world. There's a second effect of these new technologies. I described how the most canonical and sacred texts are often early adopters of these new technologies, but a second thing happens. Once you lower the cost of literature, new people can enter the written world, and that means new stories can now be told and make it into the world of writing. And this happens in the Arabic world most spectacularly with a story collection you all know because we've all grown up with it one way or another, whether knowing it or not, namely the Arabian Nights. The earliest fragments of the Arabian Nights is from a paper fragment. And it's precisely a kind of more popular kind of storytelling that now for the first time enters writing because the costs are lower and a merchant class develops different tastes and can now afford literature. And of course, there's still oral storytellers. Some of them buy these scrolls with, with the tales of the Arabian Nights, but they now start to circulate in the form of writing for the first time. So in this fourth stage of literature, if you will, it's these popular story collections that appear in India and in Persia and the Arabic world with Thousand and One Nights and Greece with Aesop's fables and other story collections really capture that popular side of storytelling that's now for the first time part of writing. And fortunately, paper makes it now into Europe via Arab-occupied Spain, Al-Andalus, the part of Spain that was occupied by the Arabs, and they bring the knowledge of papermaking, which they had perfected, into Europe just in time for Gutenberg to reinvent print. It's interesting that the Arab world had adopted this one great technology, namely papermaking, but not the other great technology, namely print. 
the golden age of Arab letters is all handwritten, but handwritten on paper. Gutenberg knew about papermaking. There was papermaking in, in Europe thanks to, um, thanks to the Arab part of Spain. And now he reinvents print with movable type, which had already existed in China and, and Korea and other parts of East Asia. And thank God paper making arrived just in time because without paper, without a cheap surface, uh, the mass, the, the age of mass production of texts that, that we now enter in with Gutenberg would never have happened because it took about 300 sheep to create the parchment on which um, some of Gutenberg's Bibles were printed so much cheaper to use paper, and this is what he then proceeds mostly to do. So now we are finally arrived in a world that's, I think, more familiar to us, namely the world of the mass production of, um, of uh, the mass production of literature. And as I mentioned, again, the church and a sacred text is an early adopter of this technology, namely Gutenberg, with the Latin Bible. Wasn't a foregone conclusion whether the church would really love print. After all, hitherto, it was, it was monks, scribal monks, who had been charged with replicating the sacred text of Christianity. And now Gutenberg was uh, suggesting to come along and use a wine press, something that he had used and refurbished to use as a printing press to do the work of sacred of, of monks who use the replication, the writing of, of sacred texts as a kind of devotional practice. But actually the, work, the, the church loved print because they realized that they could produce more Bibles, that the Bibles would be better looking, and that they could produce them more cheaply than before. So for about 60 years, the church and print worked hand in glove, and the church was so happy about this new print technology and used it everywhere. Fortunately, unfortunately, it also used it for a second thing, namely printing indulgences. This is actually something Gutenberg printed before he printed the Bible, indulgences, and it was perfect for print because it was just one page in Latin, you would leave out the name of the person who would buy the indulgence. You could write that in, in later, and you can just print tens and hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands, in one case, even hundreds of thousands of copies of a single indulgence. It's like printing money. And this is what the church did. But then, of course, Martin Luther comes along, and he doesn't like it. And he translates the Bible into German, and then Tyndale translates the Bible into English, and more and more copies of these Bibles are printed, and then you have the full-blown Protestant revolution driven, fueled, in some sense, caused by this world of print. For 60 years, it looked like the church was going to be the biggest client of print and the, and the institution that would really profit from it. But there was the second effect, namely the popular writing, um, and that, that, that always comes along with new technologies, and that led to the Protestant Revolution. I want to now end um, with our own present moment. Because we are living through 
an unusual time, namely another revolution in writing technologies. We can all feel that. And again, what's changing is not just how we communicate with written words, it's changing who has access to writing, whose story can be told. It has all kinds of effects on how information is distributed, good or ill. But one thing is clear to me, that, that we are living through a second great explosion of writing. There's, there are more texts being written and read than ever before. Um, and so I think what the pattern I detected in the past will repeat itself, namely that on the one hand, the most canonical texts are early adopters of our writing revolution, and I think we can already see that. The, the wealth of world literature is available mostly for free in such platforms as Project Gutenberg or the Internet Archives. Very easy, easily accessible as never before. And at the same time, there are new forms of popular storytelling that, that are emerging, whether fan fiction um, or you know, blogs and tweets. There's, it's changing, and it's changing every day. And we're just seeing the beginning of it. But I think the pattern I detect from the long 4,000-year history of writing is the same. Namely, on the one hand, canonical texts, the first to profit from the new technologies. But the second is that there is an explosion of popular writing and storytelling. And these effects remain to be seen. Thank you very much.